Well, if you were with us last Sunday, we started on the, uh, uh, a series on the book of Revelation. So turn with me over to Revelation chapter 5. We talked about last uh, Sunday morning, Revelation chapter 4. We've already covered in a previous series the, uh, the letters, the seven letters to the churches. And so we're not, uh, well, I hate to say it this way, but we're skipping over those chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you'd like the teaching on that, it's in much greater depth and detail in the series that we did last fall than we would have time to do in this series. But we started last Sunday morning with chapter 4 where John experiences, he's on the island of Patmos, he's been exiled for the testimony of the Lord. Uh, tradition tells us, and there's some historical evidence to back it up, that there were several occasions when Roman leaders and magistrates tried to put John to, to the death and they couldn't. There's uh, one uh, instance that's recorded in history where they put him in a vat of boiling oil and he didn't die. He was sustained by the power of God. Well, John says himself that there was a saying that went out around among the church, some parts of the church at least, that he wasn't going to die, that he couldn't die. Well, he did die, but he died after God finished with him and not before. He lived out the full length of his days and finished God's plan for him. And part of that plan was to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll look back and, and, uh, or take time to look back in the first chapter, God titles the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the devil. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist, the beast, or the great whore of Babylon. <clears throat> I'm pretty well convinced that's Madonna. I could be wrong. <clears throat> but it's the revelation of Jesus. I just lost you for the whole morning, didn't I? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's the revelation of Jesus. And the first thing that it tells us after Jesus delivers the letters to the seven churches, John says that he was in the spirit and he heard of a voice that sounded like a trumpet that said, come up here. And immediately was caught up into heaven. In other words, he changed locations. The voice was an indication. And the experience that he had was the fulfillment of a, of a change in location. It's what we know of as the rapture of the church. Now in heaven, in chapter 4, he sees some, some very specific things. First thing he makes mention of is the throne of God. Surrounded by a rainbow, or behind it was a rainbow. He speaks of the four beasts. They sound weird to us, but, the, but God has a specific purpose for them. They're surrounding the throne. Then he sees the crystal sea. Now, Revelation chapter 15, verse 2 says that it's a crystal sea mingled with fire. Fire is always a type of the Holy Ghost. Now, any time in Scripture that a, that a body of water is spoken of, a sea specifically is spoken of that it doesn't identify what sea it is, like the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean Sea or something like that, <clears throat> then it's always in reference, and there's no exception to this in the Scripture, it's always in reference to a mass of people. So when John sees the crystal sea, 
And he doesn't identify it as a body of water. He's talking about a mass of people. Well, what mass of people would be mingled with fire if not the church? Further evidence of that is that the next thing he sees and refers to is the 24 elders. That would represent the 12 tribes of Israel of the Old Covenant, the people of God in the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles, which are representatives of God concerning the church. In other words, his people of the Old Covenant represented and the people of the New Covenant represented. He sees them on thrones with crowns of gold on their head. Now, if these are the 24 elders, if these 24 elders are representatives of the church, Old Testament saints and New Testament believers, then that would mean that the church would have to be there in its entirety for all of its representatives to be present. If there's any part of the church still left on the earth, then they would be without representation. Another thing that John sees is the seven spirits of God. He sees seven lampstands which represent the seven spirits of God. He refers to that. He tells us that they are the seven spirits of God. Well, the seven spirits of God represent the completion or the entirety of the presence of the Holy Ghost. Well, if the church is still on the earth, what's the Holy Ghost doing in heaven? Jesus said that he'll never leave you or forsake you. So here's further proof or evidence that the church is in the presence of God when John hears the voice saying, come up here. This aligns completely and perfectly with what Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost about at the last day, the Lord will descend with a shout with the voice of a trumpet. He uses exactly the same description. And Paul didn't have John's revelation to go by. Paul wrote before John did. Now, at that point, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 5 because we see all these things through John's eyes gathered in heaven. So chapter 5, verse 1, he said, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, talking about the Father God, a book written and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. I don't know if there are any weak angels, but he identifies a strong one. Proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders, one of the twenty-four, said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed, notice that phrase, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now, here's the first reference to John seeing Jesus. And he sees him as the prevailing one, the conqueror. And notice the next thing that happens. And here's further proof that the church is in heaven when these things happen. 
Verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Well, who's redeemed if not the church? And has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, folks, if this is a math equation, that's a hundred trillion angels. Based on the world population of seven million, uh, seven billion people on the earth right now, that'd be 13,333 angels per person. Paul in writing about these things in Hebrews 12 says we are coming to Mount Zion under the church of the firstborn unto an innumerable company of angels. God's got enough of them. And that's after a third of them fell with Satan. The Bible says that their ministering spirit sent forth the minister for us. Not to us, but for us. We need to put some of these guys to work. Don't you agree? So the 100 trillion angels, again, if that's a math equation, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and them that are and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessed Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lived forever. Now notice it says every creature, not every person. In other words, it's talking about the earth, the creation, responding to Jesus and his worthiness through his death, burial, and resurrection, the shedding of his blood. The work of redemption, his worthiness to open the seals. Now John doesn't know what's in the book, but he weeps when nobody when he thinks nobody can open it. And so all of creation recognizes that Jesus is the redeemer. Not all the people. People on the earth aren't affected apparently. But the creation is. I'm reminded that the Bible says in a couple of places that the whole creation groans and travails until the manifestation of the sons of God. The earth is waiting for things to be put back in place. The earth was created by God and subject, made subject to sin and death. Not willingly, the Bible says, and it wants out. Chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw and beheld, 
a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now some people will say that this is Jesus. Because he's on a white horse. And he's given a crown. But notice that whoever this is that's being spoken of has not conquered. He goes forth to conquer. And notice this, the weapon that he has. A bow. No arrows, but a bow. Now what good is a bow without arrows? Not much. And every time the Bible talks about Jesus and him bringing judgment, it talks about out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword. No mention ever of of a bow referencing or relating to Jesus. Now why would Jesus need to be given a crown? Has he not already earned his crowns? This can't be Jesus. Who is it? It's one that looks like a savior. But is not. It's the Antichrist. Now remember the relative... Or the the time relative to this event. John has experienced the rapture himself. He sees the crystal sea and the representation of the Holy Spirit in its full manifestation. He sees the 24 elders which represent the, the, uh, those who are those that represent God to this church. His people. And then he sees the events that begin the tribulation. Remember in First Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter four? No, it's chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. It says that we're not appointed under wrath. We, the church, are not appointed under the wrath. The tribulation is referred to as the wrath of God. Over and over again, we see evidence that the church is in heaven before these events begin. So the first rider he sees is the one on the white horse. Verse 3, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now, what would this rider be? He takes peace from the earth and power is given for man to kill one another. Well, this is war. So the first thing that we see, the first thing that John sees, we see through his eyes. The first thing that John sees relative to events that begin in heaven and will take place on the earth is the Antichrist revealed and war. Now turn back with me. I'm not sure how far we're going to go this morning. One thing I do have on my heart is to go at the pace that God wants us to go rather than trying to finish this in a certain amount of time. So I assume that we're going to come back to Revelation chapter 6. So you might want to put something there in your Bible so you can turn back quickly. But turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. Now remember, and I'll say this over and over again because I want you to be reminded of this and established in this. Before these events take place, the church is in heaven. A lot of people get into Revelation, they get afraid of the tribulation. Well, if you're saved, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, remember the story that Jesus told of the ten 
the five who let their lamps go out waiting for the bridegroom. And they weren't allowed into the wedding feast. Well, you've got to remember who Jesus was talking to. The simplest rule of the Bible interpretation is to ask three questions. Who's doing the talking? Who are they talking to? And what are they talking about? Jesus was talking to the Jews. He's saying that there will be a lot of the Jews who will be left. The ones of the Jews who will be received into heaven are those that have accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior. That's not all of the Jewish nation. That's not all of the Jewish people. That's the example Jesus is giving. He's not talking about some being left out of some of the church being left behind. He's saying some of the nation of Israel will be left behind. How come? Because they didn't receive Jesus. So, Ezekiel 38. Verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Notice the him that's being referred to as Gog. He's a man. He's the leader of the prince of the land of Magog. Now, every Bible scholar agrees, and there's historical evidence in, in ancient writings and so forth, that Gog was referred to as the, land, the ruler of the land that we now know of as Russia. So Magog would be Russia, and Gog would be its leader. So here's a prophecy to the leader of Russia. Say unto him, verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. These are the, these are the people that are coming with him. Persia, that's Iran. Ethiopia, literally it's the word Cush, and that's the land of... Um, it's not the it's not modern day um, Ethiopia. It's the land of Sudan, Libya. That's would include the present uh, day territory that's known as the country of Libya and probably part of Algeria. Gomer, Gomer is Turkey, and all his bands. The house of Tagarma, that means the Turkish speaking people that spread out over the years through Central Asia and all of his bands and many people with him. And there are a lot of people that are in this coalition army that aren't identified. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel which, thou, which have always been, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend. Here's this Russian coalition. Thou shalt ascend and come like a cloud. Thou shalt be like a cloud, come like a storm. Excuse me. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God: It shall also come to pass that at the same time. Shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou wilt say, I will go up into the land of unwalled villages. Talking about Israel. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates. 
to take us full and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and under the people that are gathered out of all the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan and all the merchants of Tarshish. This is talking about certain uh, territories, probably Saudi Arabia and other lands. May also include the Americas, some of the European nations. Sheba and Dedan and all the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? This is a reference to diplomacy. In other words, when Russia and this coalition army of, of uh, Iran and Sudan and other ones, there are certain ones that are missing from the, from the list that are interesting. Egypt is missing from the list and Iraq is missing from the list. But there are other ones that are missing from the list that must be involved with those in the phrase, those that come with them. Because it says they'll come down from the north, and in order to come down from the north, from Russia to come from the north into Israel, then Syria and Lebanon would have to be involved, or at least giving their approval. Doesn't stand to reason that, they, that Syria and Lebanon would stand by if somebody wants to attack Israel, because they're always wanting to attack Israel. And so the response will be, and remember the church is already in heaven, the response will be a diplomatic response. They'll want to talk it out. Verse 14, therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from the place, thy place out of the north parts, remote parts to the north, other translations say, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Now, the, the, um, uh, a lot of times people fail to give credibility to the Bible prophecy because it talks about the army on horses and horseback and stuff like that. And who fights on horseback anymore? But this word horses does not literally mean a four-footed animal. The word that's translated horses in the original Hebrew means something that leaps like a horse. In other words, it's talking about the manner in which it comes down. It's talking about the swiftness of the attack. Did you notice in one of the previous verses that we read that it says it'll come like a storm, gather like a cloud? That could be a reference to the attack coming from air or coming through the air like a cloud. How would Ezekiel describe an airplane from his point of view? How would he describe a fleet of airplanes or a squadron of airplanes? They're in the sky. If there's a mass of them, then they're going to be dark like a cloud. It's possible that that's what he's referring to. So don't let some of the terminology throw you off and make you think that it can't be real. Because it is. Verse 16. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. And it shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me. Notice here's the reason why God's going to do it this way. That the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Now, folks, I would submit to you that at the point of time that this happens, there is not one Christian on the face of the earth. Now, you may be ahead of me and say, yeah, but what about the 144,000? What about the people that get saved during the tribulation period? Well, we're not at the 144,000 yet. 
The 144,000 are not sealed until after the war. So I would submit to you that there is not one Christian that has been left behind on the earth when these things occur. No chance of somebody being in the bathroom and God forgot them. And God says, I'm doing this that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee before their eyes. Thus saith the Lord God, art he, art thou he of whom I have spoken in time, in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Now I want to make this point. That God refers to this as his fury and his wrath. Which is the same thing that he calls the tribulation period. This is an indication to us. And there are others. This is not the only thing that we have to go by. But this is an indication to us that this is the beginning of the tribulation period. One of the things, and and I'm not sure if we'll read it or not. I don't want to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but I don't want to leave anything out either. One of the things it refers to is that in one day, God says this over and over again, in one day he wipes out this coalition army. And the weapons that are left behind burn for seven years. Well, now the tribulation period is how long? Seven years. At the end of the tribulation period, time as we know it, time on the earth ceases. The millennium starts. The thousand year period of of Jesus' reign here on the earth begins. But the seven years is up. So if they burn for seven years and the tribulation is seven years, then doesn't this have to be on day one of the tribulation? At this point, we see no evidence that the Antichrist has any significant position with anybody. Or has any standing that speaks of. It's not to say that he's unknown at this point. But he's a non-issue. He's a non-factor. So let me read verse 19 again. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking. That's an earthquake. In the land of Israel. Now the land of Israel is not the boundaries that everybody wants to establish now. The land of Israel in God's estimation and God's thinking is the same thing that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 18. It says something to this effect. It says, and in that day God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I will give thee all the land from the great river Nile, the river of Egypt, to the great river Euphrates. So the territories that God identifies Israel to be has nothing to do with the West Bank, Gaza, Settlement places or any of that kind of stuff that everybody wants to argue about today. God considers Israel to be from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. And that's the territory that he says is going to be the earthquake zone. There will be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Notice the result of this earthquake. 
so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains saith the Lord God every man's sword shall be against his brother now let me ask you a question what is there about an earthquake that makes people fight against each other is that what happens when we have an earthquake out here earthquake starts and everybody starts fighting each other now the idiots start looting but they're not fighting against each other there's one thing for you to consider and that is this remember what I told you about the crystal sea whenever a sea is referred to but it's not identified as a body a specific body of water it's referred to as a mass of people well the same thing can be said of the word mountains mountains that are not specifically identified usually and it's not always the case there are exceptions but usually refer to kingdoms now if that's possible let's read it that way and see how it reads All the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the kingdoms shall be thrown down. That could be a reference to the defeat of this coalition army. The kingdoms shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my kingdoms. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, God says they're his. Well, could he be referring to the fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? God's the owner of the earth. He never relinquishes control of the earth or ownership of the earth. He gave it to, under man's authority while he was here, while the church was here. Could be that he's talking about kingdoms. I will call for a sword against him throughout all my kingdoms, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain with great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now let's keep reading in verse 30, chapter 39. Therefore thou son of man prophesy against Gog, the leader of Russia. And say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee. Only thing that's going to be left is one sixth. And will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring, upon, bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. Now these mountains are identified. Mountains of Israel are the northern mountains on the border between Israel and Syria. Those are the only mountains that Israel really has. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. In other words, you strip them of their weapons. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. And I will give unto thee the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. And thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken this, saith the Lord. And I will send a fire upon Magog, Russia, 
and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord thy God. Now let me, let me back up a little bit here and talk about some things. Some things we don't know for sure. It's interesting to speculate in my thinking, but we want to make sure that we identify speculation as just speculation. We don't want to build a doctrine on it. Notice that it talks about the way that God destroys Israel or destroys the nations coming against Israel, Gog, which may very well be Putin. There's no question that Putin is intent on restoring the Soviet Union. He's made incursions into Ukraine in previous years, into Crimea. He's making some very threatening um, Overtures into the Baltic states, Latvia and Estonia and such. In fact, you may not be aware of this. This hasn't been reported very much. But just this last Friday, NATO deployed troops to the Baltic states because of Russia's overtures and moves into those territories. Not only that, but also on the border of Poland. And it's interesting. One of the things that I saw that interested me about this Remember Gorbachev, the leader of Russia when Reagan was president, when we had a real president? I hope we got another one. Time will, time will tell. But folks, let me say this. Since I stepped in it already, let me go ahead and say this. I'm hopeful for President-elect Trump to do some good things for the country. I believe personal belief this God opening a window for the church to do what it needs to do to prepare for the last days but Trump is in no way going to be a savior for the world the things that the Bible predicts are true no matter who's elected Trump is going to disappoint me I'm already ready for it I don't have any illusions and I don't want to have any illusions about what's going to happen and how things are going to go This is not going to be a sweeping move of God for the country. I believe there will be a sweeping move of God, but it will be the glory of God and not politics. So prepare yourself. He's not going to do everything the way you want him to do it. He may not do everything the way that's best to be done. But thank God we've got a president again, at least one coming into office that I feel like I can pray for. That's big for me. I've known my prayers were falling on deaf ears. Not because God doesn't hear them, but because God can't change a man's heart against his will. So I've been in a hole trying to pray for the president and the leaders of the country for the last eight years. It's good to see the light. Okay. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, here's what I was going to say. Gog may be Putin. If not Putin, somebody very much like him and in the same vein as him. And notice that the Bible says that God destroys Russia. And he keeps saying again and again, in that day. In that day. That indicates a 24-hour period. This war will not be a protracted war. It will be over in 24 hours. And notice how God says that he will do it. He says he'll rain down fire and hailstones upon the army. And it will strip them of their weapons. They tell me that the only thing that uh, 
sophisticated weaponry won't work in is a hailstorm. So Russia could come against Israel with all kinds of sophisticated weapons and smart bombs and guided missiles and all that kind of stuff. And a hailstorm completely destroys its ability to function. That's why weather reports are so important when somebody's considering going to war. But notice that it's not just a regular hailstorm. It's hail and fire. Now that sounds a lot like what God did on Egypt when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. That was one of the plagues on Egypt. I want you to understand, folks, that once the church is out of here, it's a whole new ball game. Old Testament type destruction is back on the table and is utilized. And notice in chapter 39, I read over it quickly, but I want you to see it. Verse 2. God says that he will leave but the sixth part of thee. That's 17%, less than 17%. That means 83% will be destroyed. And notice in verse 6, he says, I'll send a fire upon Magog. Well, they're not fighting in Russia. But the fire is going to go to Magog, the land of Russia. And among them that dwell carelessly. The word carelessly is also the word confidently. In the isles. Now, isles does not mean islands of the sea. It means habitable places. It means countries. So God's talking about not just destroying an army. He's talking about destroying all but 17% of countries. If the sixth part is relative to the, to the fire that he sends upon these countries. Now, that's a judgment on my part. But I don't understand why he would say he's leaving a sixth part of thee when he's talking about other places being destroyed too. If he's just talking about a sixth part of the army, only 17% of the army left, then why is he talking about the other stuff in a different manner? So I think, it seems to me, he's talking about destroying 83% of these countries that make up this coalition army. Now, folks, if you go and look at the map with just the countries that we know about, And we don't know who else is identified as the peoples that are with thee, the ones that aren't specified. We don't know who they are. But if you look at the ones that are specified, these are all Islamic countries. Exclusively Islamic countries. God delivers a blow in a 24-hour period. The first day of the tribulation, he delivers a crippling blow to Islam. The leading Islamic nations. Now will it wipe out Islam? No. Those people are idiots. And every time they endeavor to do something. It doesn't go their way. They just say well Allah wills it. So let's try again. So I don't have any illusions about it. Wiping out Islam. Or crippling Islam in any way. As far as their belief system is concerned. But it does take out the leading players. which is probably important, maybe necessary for the Antichrist to rise up. Because if the church gets out of the way, and I'm taking things for granted, maybe I shouldn't. I'm taking for granted that everybody is aware of the supernatural nature of countries aligning themselves with Islam. 
I'm not just talking about Islamic countries. I'm talking about this whole refugee issue, this whole immigration issue that seems to be worldwide. Why in the world would Germany set up a system where millions of Islamic migrants can come in when they already have evidence of them trying to terrorize their people and their countries? That's supernatural, folks. I mean, it's just dumb. We see the same thing happening on a smaller scale here in America, although it's happening on a bigger scale than is being reported. But it's not just about immigration. I mean, some people want to say, well, you know, these people are trying to escape terrible conditions, terrible situations, and we need to be compassionate. Okay, I'm all for compassion. But I can't define compassion as letting the devil into my house. Now, we know, and it's been proven here just over the last week, that it's not just about immigration. Because look at what Obama just did with the Cuban immigrants. Changing the policy on the Cubans that that survived the swim to dry land. Now, why would he take a hard-line position after eight years? Why would he take a hard-line position against Cuban immigrants? Well, I don't know that I can speak to anybody else's motive, but I know one thing for sure. There's not many Muslims coming over from Cuba. So there's a supernatural aspect to what's going on in the world, particularly in Europe, maybe predominantly in Europe, with these Muslim immigrants being allowed against the will of the people in many cases to take a foothold in the countries. And the countries are making steps, taking steps, changing policies to make it better for the Muslims once they get in their countries to the detriment of the people that live there, the citizens of that country. That's supernatural, folks. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement. It's hard for me not to. But that's really not the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to show you the supernatural aspect of these things. Now, there's a silver lining to some of this. And that is, Muslims are being saved by the thousands. In 1979, they were estimated in Iran to be 500 Christians. Now, there's over 300,000. Most of them, however are reporting that they've had dreams of somebody named Jesus appearing to them and inviting them to follow him. There's a lot of Christian work, a lot of salvations that are being accomplished in borderline territories, refugee camps and so forth. We've got some friends. I'm not personally acquainted with them, but some people that we know from Ramah. That God told them to move their family. They've got four little kids, I think. To move their family to live and to work in a refugee camp right in the middle of Iraq. Now, personally, I think that's dumb. And it would be dumb for anybody who hadn't been told to do it by God. But they were. They have been. And some of the stories that they have to tell and some of the results that they're getting... 
our book of Acts stuff. So God's on the move. But back to my original point, and that is there's a supernatural aspect of nations being associated with and partnering with Islam. And many of those nations are going to be destroyed, all but destroyed. The sixth part left by the fire that rains on these nations. Let's pick up in verse 7 of chapter 39. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. He's saying I want to show Israel who I am. And I will not then pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So God is doing these things to prove himself to Israel and to the rest of the world, the unsaved world. Well, everybody's unsaved at this point in time. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord God, that this is the day whereof I have spoken. Here it is again. A reference to a quick end to the invasion of Israel. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. This has got to be the beginning of tribulation. So that they shall take no more wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those that spoiled them, And rob those that rob them, saith the Lord God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog, that's the leader of Russia again, a place there of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses, the word noses is the word mouths, it shall stop the mouths of the passengers, and there they shall bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hamongog. Now, this is an unusual situation, folks, because you know as well as I do that the leader of Russia doesn't usually go out with the troops any more than the president of the United States goes on a military offensive. This is a very unusual situation, but it specifies that Gog will be killed along with the armies in Israel. And it says that it will stop the mouths of the passerbys, the passengers. In other words, it will put an end once and for all to all this talk about what Israel needs to give up for peace. There is a congregation of 70 or, is it 70 or 72 nations in Paris that are meeting today for the express purpose of condemning Israel. The United States is represented by our outstanding Secretary of State, John Kerry. And the big question is, what position is he going to take? I'm sure it will be a strong one. It has been stated that these 72, is it 70 or 72? Anybody know? 70? It's been stated by these 70 nations or the organizers of this meeting that it was specifically done before President-elect Trump was inaugurated for the express purpose of putting pressure on him to take sides against Israel. I don't believe he'll do it. 
Look at the state of the world we're in. If the church were removed, what do you think would happen to Israel? Maybe a better way to ask this, we know what will happen, we just read it. Maybe a better way to ask it is, how long do you think it will take for this to happen to Israel? Hardly any time at all, it seems to me. If the church is removed, which we see in evidence over the last several months, the church is really the only friend Israel has. They say it's America, but it's not America, it's the church. It certainly hasn't been this this present administration. So if the church is out of the way and the president administration or whatever administration is in place at this point in time, that these things happen, is not or no longer a part of those that would consider Israel a friend, what do you think the action would be or the response would be to this invasion from the north on Israel by Russia and the coalition armies? I think I said that in a confusing way. Let me say it in a little clearer way. If the church was already gone, what do you think Obama would have done if Russia and this coalition army had invaded Israel? Anything? He would have done whatever he considered politically expedient, which would have been to assess the situation, I'm sure. We're still gathering facts. Folks, I want you to see the importance of the church being taken out of the way for these things to happen. And these things could happen in a lightning flash. Doesn't mean it has to be that way. The church could be gone for a short period of time for these things to line up. But the world that we're living in with the church already here, still here, these things are already lining up. Are you with me? Uh, let's keep reading some of this. Let's pick up with verse 12. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them. That means the invading force. That they may cleanse the land. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them. And it shall be to them a renown. The day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. And they shall sever out, of, sever out men of continual employment, passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. After the end of seven months shall they search. In other words, God's saying, it's telling us that God's a job creator. People will go to Israel for work to bury the Russian coalition army. And they, uh, and verse 15, and the passengers that shall pass through the land when any man, when any sees a man's bone, when any seeth the man's bone, then shall he set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. And also the name of the city shall be Hamoni. Thus shall, shall they cleanse the land. And thou, son of man, saith, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, Assemble yourselves and come. Gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you. Even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel. That's the border of Israel or of uh, Syria. 
that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of goats, of bullocks, and all them fatlings of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you be full, and drink blood till you be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Sounds like a pretty gross experience. But remember, the church is gone. There's not much to be desired in this world once Jesus has taken his church. Thus shall you be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory upon the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed in my hand that I have laid upon upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they trespassed against me. Therefore I hid my face from them and gave them into the hands of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. Skip down with me to verse 28. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them into their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now turn with me over to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church, and, and it's interesting because we know from the book of Acts that Paul spent three months in Thessalonica. And then he writes back to the Thessalonians, two, church, two letters to the churches. And in those two letters, he talks more about end-time stuff. There's a greater collection of end-time stuff than in any of the other letters that he wrote. And he says to the Thessalonians, you remember how when I was there, I taught you this stuff. Now, what's fascinating about that to me is, is here's Paul, the first time he goes into Thessalonica. We only have one record, uh, record of one time that he was there. It's possible that he could have passed through there on other occasions. But nothing that he spent any time there. So literally, he established the church in three months. And this church, the Thessalonians, we don't have any record that he did it the same way and everywhere that he went. But the church in Thessalonica... He talked more to them in the first three months, just getting the church established. He talked to them about the coming of the Lord more than anybody else. Now, I have no doubt it was because he was led of the Holy Ghost to do so. And I don't mean to imply otherwise. But I wouldn't think in the first three months of the church you'd spend a lot of time on the coming of the Lord. Your time is limited. He knows he's not going to be there long. And instead of dealing with the issues of faith... And righteousness and who we are in Christ and some of the things that we would consider to be the basics and the foundation. He gets into the coming of the Lord big time. Thank God for us that he did because now we have record of the things that he told them. Chapter 2 verse 1. Now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. The word gathering together, the phrase gathering together means complete collection. So he's saying everything that I'm about to tell you is based on Jesus coming back and us being gathered together unto him. 
I want you to get the context of the statements that he's going to make from this point forward. Are you with me? That you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, he's saying, remember what I taught you. Don't worry about what somebody else tells you. Don't worry about what somebody else prophesies to you. Don't worry about what somebody says to you by the Spirit of the Lord. Remember what I told you. If somebody says that they've got a letter that we wrote that contradicts what we told you before, don't accept it. Remember what we told you concerning Jesus' coming. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, Jesus coming back and gathering his church together, shall not come except or before there comes a falling away first. Now, the word falling away, the words that are translated falling away literally means departure. It's the word apostia. It could be translated apostasy. It could also be translated departure. Now, there are words that Paul could have used if he meant one or the other. See, some people take this verse and say there's going to be a falling away. Many people are going to turn away from the Lord. Well, that would be apostasy. And that's possible. The language certainly would support that. But there's another segment of the church that says there's going to be a falling away. Meaning a departure, a catching away, a rapture of the church. And the word supports that. So which way is right? Well, if you know anything about the Greek language, there are words that Paul could have chosen to mean either of these two meanings exclusively. If he meant a falling away, turning away from the truth of the word, he could have used a word that meant that specifically and would not have meant a departure as in terms of rapture. If Paul meant to to use the word rapture or something that conveyed the meaning of the word rapture, he could have used a word that specifically identifies as that meaning rather than apostasy as well. I'm pretty well convinced the Holy Ghost knows language. And if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, which we believe it is, why then would the Holy Ghost use a word that means both if he's not talking about both? If he means one and not the other, why didn't he use a word exclusive or specific to the meaning that he intended? If it does not mean both, then the Holy Ghost deceived us through the language. In my thinking, it has to mean both. So notice he's saying Jesus is not coming back before this, before there's a departure. A departure from the faith. Paul writes to the church about that. In the last days many shall depart from the faith. Giving heed to the seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So there will be Christians that turn away from the truth. It doesn't say that they will lose their salvation. It just says they will turn away from the truth. But then the other meaning. Which in my thinking must be true as well. Is the gathering together the complete collection of the church unto Jesus. So notice he's saying that these things shall not take place. Jesus is not coming back except or before there comes a turning away from the faith by some and a catching away of the church. First, and that man of sin, that's the Antichrist, be revealed 
the son of perdition. Notice he's saying the church has to go first before the Antichrist can be revealed. Who opposes, talking about the Antichrist, he's going to give us some information about him. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. The Bible says at the three and a half year mark, the midpoint of the tribulation, he sits in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and proclaims himself as God. Paul is referencing that by the Holy Ghost. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. We've covered this before, he said. And now you know what withholdeth. The word withholdeth means to restrain. And now you know what withholdeth, the restrains, that he might be revealed. You know what's keeping him from being revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth, that's the same word restrains. He who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked, that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now notice he says there's something restraining him. There's something restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. And until that which is restraining him is taken out of the way, the Antichrist cannot be revealed. That doesn't mean that we can't know who he is. Well, let me rephrase that. We won't know who he is. How do I say this? It could be somebody that we already know is in place. It could be Prince Charles. He's dumb enough to qualify. It could be somebody like that that we already know from a famous position or famous point of view. But nobody would look at him and say, yeah, that's the guy. It's possible that he's already on the scene now. And we just don't know who he is. Because he can't be revealed until something takes place. He can't be revealed until that which is restraining or withholding him from being revealed is taken out of the way. Well, what is that? Or who is that? Some people say it's the Holy Ghost. But folks, I would submit to you that the Holy Ghost is still here on the earth. Not doing the same work as he did on the, during the church age. But he's still here on the earth to help people get saved during the tribulation period. We know that the 144,000 get a lot of people, what's called a great multitude of people saved. Most of those are Jews. Jesus said himself, no man can come unto me except my father draw him, meaning the Holy Ghost convict him and bring him to salvation. So how can people get saved if the Holy Ghost is not here during the tribulation? Be impossible. If Jesus told us the truth, it would be impossible to occur. So if he's still here during the tribulation, at least in a measure, not the same measure as the church, as he was working through the church. But if he's still here in any form during the tribulation, then how can he, how can he be the one that's restraining the Antichrist from being revealed? Now, there's only one thing that's gone from now as opposed to the tribulation period, and that's the church. Folks, I want you to understand, when Jesus came back to the earth after his resurrection and appeared to the disciples and he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, 
Go ye therefore into the earth. He really did give the church authority. And we may not look like much. But we really do have authority. And the Bible specifically says it's our authority. The authority that was delivered unto us. That's keeping the Antichrist from being revealed. It's keeping Satan from, from starting his final work. So when the devil tells you you're nothing, you're nobody, point him back to this. Remind him that I'm enough to keep you from revealing you're a big dude. (laughs) You're chosen one. And notice that all these things, none of these things can be accomplished until the church leaves first. I believe very strongly, and I hope you do too, I hope you're seeing enough of the truth to believe it along with me. There is multiplied evidence that the rapture occurs before the tribulation period. Now let me close with this. Some people will say, yeah, but what about the, it talks about a rapture during the middle of the tribulation. There is one. At the midpoint of the tribulation, There's the great multitude that are raptured, those that are saved by the 144,000, the Jewish evangelists. And it calls it a great multitude. It identifies it as primarily a Jewish congregation, a Jewish multitude. But there is a rapture at the midpoint of the tribulation. Some people see that one and say, well, see, that's the church. No, can't be the church because it says they wash their robes. Not are given robes of righteousness. They wash their robes because they come out of the tribulation. The church is in heaven when John sees all of these things begin to occur. I didn't finish telling you about Gorbachev, did I? Concerning NATO's deployment of troops to the Baltic states and the Poland border. In response to Russia's troop movements and posturing and so forth, Gorbachev was interviewed by, a, I'm not sure it was a TV, uh, excuse me, a radio station, <clears throat> or I think it was, I think it was a radio station, a Russian radio station. And they were talking to him about it. And of course, he's a nationalist. He's pro Russia, always has been. There's no telling what he would have done if he hadn't been afraid of Reagan. But, uh, but he said this. He said that he thought that NATO's response or NATO's action was foolish because it's bringing us to the point of war, to the brink of war. And then he said this. And this was just over the weekend, folks. Then he said this. He said, and you know that the next war will be the last one. I don't know if he knows the Bible, but he's right. The next one will be the last one. Thank God we won't be here for this. But now remember what Jesus said when the disciples asked him about signs of the end. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, we're used to the wars taking place. There are wars taking place now. There's a war going on in Syria. We've lived through the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. So we're used to that. That's not something that's new to us. 
But another thing that he said was that we'd hear of rumors of wars. I think there's going to be more prevalent. The rumors of wars are going to be more prevalent than the wars in the last days. The last days of the church, I mean. Because the more and more we progress toward the end of time, the end of the church age, and when I say the end of time, that's what I mean, the end of the church age, the closer and closer we, we get to the rapture, the more and more these things are going to line up. The more and more these countries are going to align themselves against Israel. We're going to witness a lot of these things aligning and setting themselves in place. But remember what Jesus said. He said, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Thank God we don't have to be troubled because we know Jesus is coming for us. And it won't be long. I don't know how long it is. Paul said it wouldn't be long. That was 2,000 years ago. But it won't be long before we'll hear a voice that sounds like a trumpet from heaven. It says, come up here. Come up here. Jesus said concerning these events, he said, when you see the fig tree bloom, talking about Israel becoming a nation again, that was 1947 or 1948, I should say. And another thing that he talked about is see Jerusalem restored. That was 1967. He said the generation that saw those things would be the generation that sees him come. I wasn't alive for 1948 but I see the result of it I was here for 1967 I believe Jesus is telling us that he's coming in our lifetime oh what a great day it'll be got a lot of work to do first we've got a lot of occupying till he comes But thank God he is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to read and understand these words. We know that we understand in part and we see in part. But you give us enough to know the times and the seasons that we live. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing a great work in us and in the world that we can reach as many people as possible. We're still believing, Father, for the precious fruit of the earth before Jesus comes. We believe it will be a great harvest, a great revival, a great multitude of souls coming into the kingdom of God. And they'll come in because of the glory of the Lord. Lord, whatever our part is in that, we want to be effective in playing it. We want to be most effective in doing what you've given us to do. We thank you, Lord, for making it so in Jesus' precious name. And, Lord, we pray for ourselves that we would be watchful, vigilant, that we may be counted worthy to escape the tribulation. We know that when you're coming, Lord, we're coming with you. We want to be worthy of that gathering. We want to be worthy. To be caught up into heaven. To ever be with you.
Lord, I pray that people would examine their hearts. That you would impress upon them the seriousness of this hour. That this is not the time to play church. It's not the time to join ourselves to sin even if we are saved. But that we would see and know the days that we live in. The lateness of the hour. And that we would commit ourselves anew and afresh to righteousness. To walking out the righteousness that we've been made by the blood of Jesus. Adjustments. Adjustments. A laying aside of sin and the weights which hold us back. And Lord, maybe most of all, that your church worldwide, including us, would step forth in the authority that we've been given in the name of Jesus. That we'd lay aside fear and be bold to speak the truth of the Lord to those that we meet. That we'd be ambassadors for you at home and on the job and everywhere that we go. Lord, we're asking you to do a great work by the Holy Spirit in the earth. Let's start that great work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Say this after me. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. I believe that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the precious fruit of the earth shall come forth. I believe. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you. You're dismissed.